Welcome back to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. Thanks for sticking with us in the new year. We hope you enjoyed some relaxed days with your families over the holidays and got into 2017 all right. We will continue right where we left off before the holidays with pathogen detection and sepsis markers too. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to our colleague Dr. Evangelos Giamarelos from Greece to get us started. Hello, everybody. Uh, I hope my name is Evangelos Giamarelos. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Athens, Greece, and I would like to welcome you to the session number 10, uh, Pathogen Detection and Sepsis Markers. So we have a, a wonderful panel today for you of the most experienced people everywhere in the globe, so uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce you the first speaker, Professor John Cohen from the United Kingdom, and uh, he will uh, provide a first keynote on the importance of diagnostic microbiology. Professor Cohen. Well, thank you very much, and uh, hello from, from London. Um, uh, I have only a, a relatively short uh, time, uh, and I want to persuade you that um, uh, microbiology or microbiological diagnosis is not a luxury, uh, but in fact is a key part of the uh, management of patients with sepsis. And I, I, I'm going to discuss that under three headings. Firstly, uh, clearly the importance of microbiology uh, in relation to making uh, the correct choice of antibiotic. Uh, secondly, uh, that it provides information about microbial epidemiology. And then finally, and perhaps the most exciting, um, the opportunity that having microbiological information provides when it comes to developing targeted therapy. So if I, first of all, talk about the first issue, which is the question of choosing the right drug. And uh, if we look at the factors which determine the outcome of antibiotic therapy, broadly, and I think uncontroversially, uh, there are three. Uh, clearly, you, you must choose uh, the right drug. Secondly, uh, you must get it uh, at the right time and uh, as quickly as possible, generally. And thirdly, you must obviously give it uh, at the right dose. Uh, and I haven't got time today to go through all of those uh, in any detail. But I think the, um, uh, the, the key points that I want to make about this is that the changes and recent developments in technological advances in terms of diagnostic microbiology uh, have really produced and are in the process of producing um, a, a real shift in the uh, ability of microbiology to provide real-time valuable information. Uh, and, and there are, I think, two major technologies that I want to uh, mention. The first is MALDI-TOF. And again, uh, there isn't time to go through the actual technical uh, process uh, here, but uh, as you can see from just the one example uh, at the bottom of the slide, uh, that uh, this is a technique which is now um, reasonably standard in uh, most um, uh, uh, developed countries in terms of microbiological laboratories. Uh, and for the first time, this is producing extremely rapid information which can be used from the patient to produce microbiological uh, diagnoses. This is a, 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 has really transformed uh, the speed with which microbiology uh, can provide useful information. The second uh, major example of uh, technological advance 
uh, is uh, obviously genomic and high throughput sequencing. Uh, and this, I think it would be fair to say, is a little bit behind Moldytop. It's not quite so advanced in terms of its, it, of its uh, uh, acute clinical utility. Um, and as you can see on this slide, um, uh, it, it really uh, is capable of producing a major shortcut uh, in terms of how quickly we get information. So at the moment, this kind of technology is already in routine use in what I would call public health uh, context, so um, uh, uh, tracing outbreaks and so on. Um, but because of the speed with which this is, this is moving, uh, it really will not be very long before this can be used, if you like, in a hot context uh, uh, as a way of making very rapid uh, clinical diagnosis. And the strength of this approach is not only that it would be able to tell you which organism it is, but of course uh, it may also provide information, for example, about antibiotic uh, sensitivity uh, or indeed about virulent, various uh, virulence uh, factors which might be present and which might influence uh, therapy. So, um, uh, in, in, in haste, inevitably, uh, I think uh, the uh, power of microbiology to bring uh, these techniques into the clinical uh, arena has tr been transformed. And recently, we, we reviewed this uh, pretty comprehensively. So, just to talk you through this slide, if you look at the upper panel uh, and look at, uh, let's say, blood culture as the laboratory test being done uh, and the point at which uh, pathogens are detected uh, in, in the blood cultures. And traditionally, of course, uh, identification and, and then susceptibility testing can take anything from 12 to 18 hours later. And as I've already indicated, there are a whole range of techniques, and I, I haven't time to discuss each of them, but such as Moldytoff, uh, which has enormously shortened that uh, technique. Even more excitingly, if you look on the left-hand side of the slide, uh, there are techniques which are now uh, well advanced, which are uh, able to pro provide microbiological information um, uh, uh, well before the point at which conventional pathogens are detected using standard techniques. Uh, and uh, in, this, in this reference, uh, you'll find a detailed discussion of these different approaches. So uh, I think for the first time, um, uh, uh, we are really in a, in, in a situation where uh, while people always liked to have microbiological information, we are now in a position uh, where this provides a real opportunity uh, to change the way in which we manage patients. Now, uh, moving on to uh, the second bit about the epidemiology, I think there are two key uh, uh, issues here. The first is that the epidemiology and knowing the microbial etiology provides what are described as uh, uh, secular trends in microbial etiology. And what that means uh, translated into English, uh, it really is which then are the most likely organisms to be causing sepsis in my hospital and on my unit? And the second information, which is about uh, antimicrobial resistance, translates as, so if I know which organisms they are, how likely is it that they are going to be resistant <coughs> excuse me, to the first-line antibiotics which are at my disposal? And I suspect I really don't need to speak to this audience very much about the problem of antimicrobial resistance. It's self-apparent. Uh, and here's just one example taken from, uh, from India uh, showing how in this particular case uh, uh, the ability to track resistance patterns, uh, for example, in uh, fluoroquinolones as shown here, um, uh, is obviously absolutely critical uh, to making uh, antibiotic choices. Without this information, we simply can't get the right uh, or use the right antibiotics uh, for our patients. Uh, 
Uh, and similarly, um, uh, if you look at the, the burden of antibacterial resistance, and again, uh, this is something which will be very painfully, uh, 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 everyone will be painfully aware of, uh, the costs, both the clinical costs and the societal and economic costs, uh, are obviously uh, huge. Uh, I think it is uh, noteworthy uh, that uh, uh, in a short while, in a few weeks' time, uh, the United Nations General Assembly are going to be holding a, a debate on the floor of the, of the Assembly um, uh, to discuss the problem uh, of antibacterial resistance. It's really only the fourth time that a health-related topic has been discussed in this way at the United Nations, and I think it's a very powerful reminder of the global challenge that this uh, represents. And then, uh, finally, um, um, uh, perhaps the most exciting, as I say, as aspect uh, uh, of this, uh, which is um, uh, how then can uh, microbiology help us with the, the, the new approach of, of personalized or precision uh, medicine? Uh, and I think that there are obviously, again, two, two aspects to this. Firstly, the one we've already mentioned, uh, which is if we really can uh, make with confidence a rapid microbial diagnosis, uh, then that will certainly help us get the right uh, antibiotic. But I think what's more exciting in a way uh, is the, um, uh, the idea uh, which uh, is that if we were able to say with confidence we know which organism this is, it opens up the possibility of using new types of therapeutic uh, approaches. Uh, and let me just give you uh, two specific examples just to illustrate uh, what I mean with, with some data. So uh, here is an example of an approach uh, which is completely different to antibiotics, which is using uh, bacteriophage, that's to say, uh, viruses which uh, infect uh, uh, bacteria, uh, and uh, uh, one can um, uh, one can develop uh, uh, specific phages uh, which have the ability to target very specific organisms and then uh, lyse them and kill them. Um, and in this particular case, this is a, 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 um, a mouse model. Uh, this simply illustrates that. Uh, if, for example, we knew for a fact that the patient was infected with acinetobacter, then uh, it would be possible to deploy a specific phage uh, which lysed acinetobacter uh, bacteria uh, and, as you see in this example, um, uh, improves the, the outcome in this experimental model. Now, here's a second uh, example uh, which has um, uh, gone even further because this is uh, advanced into, into clinical trial. Um, and this is an area that we've been particularly interested in um, uh, and uh, is the example of group A strep. Uh, and uh, in this case, the specific agent which is being used uh, is a peptide antagonist, uh, a peptide antagonist which interferes with the immunologic signaling, uh, uh, which uh, is the mechanism by which these organisms using them depending on a, a process called superantigenic stimulation, cause the uh, shock um, uh, which, um, uh, which, causes, uh, which causes this clinical syndrome. Uh, and uh, indeed, there is a phase two clinical trial um, uh, which um, uh, is currently, or has in fact simply recently concluded uh, with very encouraging uh, outcomes. So uh, these two examples... Um, um, I, I think make the point that we would be able to think beyond conventional antibiotics um, uh, if we were sufficiently confident in the microbiological diagnosis uh, that we were 
uh, able to, to deploy these as first-line agents. And I think that illustrates, uh, obviously at this stage, simply the potential, but I think an exciting uh, potential uh, for this approach. And I want to finish just with a final observation against uh, 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 a topic which, of course, has been discussed, and I'm sure discussed during this, this conference widely, uh, the, the new sepsis definitions. And simply to make the point that amongst all the discussion, uh, we know this, this is the, 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 the currently proposed um, uh, definition. Uh, the problem, of course, one of several problems, which is that, that, that at the moment um, uh, it remains, however you define it, as a syndrome. Uh, there isn't, if you like, the equivalent of, a, of an X-ray for a broken leg uh, to make the diagnosis. Uh, and although we understand the concept intellectually of a dysregulated immune response, uh, actually there's nothing we can actually measure at the moment uh, uh, to, to determine that, at least not regularly and routinely at the bedside. Um, and I think that it, 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 it's interesting to reflect that um, uh, as we move forward and as microbiology is able to offer uh, more, perhaps, uh, to the diagnosis um, and the management of patients, uh, that actually, in many ways, these, these arguments about this, uh, uh, this approach and these diagnoses may well become uh, redundant. So just to uh, conclude, uh, I hope I've uh, persuaded you that uh, microbiological diagnosis and microbiological information is not a luxury, it's not something which is nice to have, but actually is a critical part of the, um, uh, the information that we need uh, as we uh, manage uh, patients with sepsis and as we hopefully improve the management of patients with sepsis. Thank you very much. Well, I do thank you, uh, Professor Cohen, for this uh, exciting presentation. And uh, I have some questions of the audience. Uh, the first of all, the first question uh, appears to be uh, a rather uh, easy and straightforward. However, it's because it is the most important question for the management of sepsis, I feel the need to address that to you. So the question is, is a five-day period a long time to identify a pathogen in sepsis? Oh, the short answer is yes. Um, uh, I think that, uh, as I was trying to um, uh, indicate, um, uh, that uh, the, the, the Having to wait uh, even two days, let alone five days, uh, to, to to get this kind of information, um, uh, I think uh, you know does seriously uh, hamper our efforts to um, uh, to improve the outcome. Um, now, I think it's 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 fair to to, to say in discussion that. Uh, of course, one doesn't have to have the, diag the, you know, the microbiological diagnosis to start treatment, and, and as we all know, um, uh, it is extremely uh, common, indeed standard practice, that we would start treating these patients uh, empirically, um, uh, and that's absolutely the right thing uh, to do. Uh, I think the question uh, you, you could put it another way around is, uh, it, clearly it's too long a time. Uh, I, I think what, what we're trying to argue here is that um, uh, having such a long period disadvantages the patient and uh, means that we can't produce a, uh, a focused and specific form of treatment quickly enough. Um, so uh, you know, I recognize that there are uh, places around the world where these kind of rapid diagnostic text tests I was talking about, whether it's MOLDI-TOF or, or, or genomic tests, are simply not available. And I think we, um, uh, you know, we do need to acknowledge that we need to develop strategies which are appropriate around the world and, and, and vary depending upon the facilities available to colleagues uh, to manage patients. 
Um, uh, it's not a bad thing to have the information after five days. It's simply better to have it shorter. And one second question. What is the likelihood using uh, many of these uh, molecular techniques of false positives, meaning detecting residual microbial DNA uh, that is probably contamination and not pathogenic. Yeah, no, that, 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 that of course is a, is a is a is a critical point. They don't all depend, by the way, on uh, on on the presence of DNA. It depends which which uh, which which test you use. Um, uh, but but part of the clinical validation of these approaches um, uh, is is absolutely designed to make sure that they are not so sensitive that, uh, as you say, you're picking up a contamination. This is partly about um, uh, adjusting the, the uh, sensitivity and the calibration of the test, and of course partly about technological uh, issues uh, within the laboratory uh, that, that, uh, that the test is being uh, performed in. But certainly uh, with, with Malditov, for example, that doesn't arise as, as an issue. Um, and as, as, as many people, I'm sure, listening to this will, will know themselves from personal experience, this is now a fairly routine um, uh, uh, technology, which is is used in, in many, many microbiology laboratories. Uh, where the, the, the question of, of, of DNA contamination and so on becomes more uh, challenging is when you're taking, obviously, non-sterile specimens, um, in other words, or specimens from non-sterile sites, rather. Um, uh, and I think, uh, you know, that is, um, uh, that is a, a very genuine challenge and one which I think uh, uh, is, is beyond what we can do at the moment in terms of being confident in, in the result, because clearly false positives are also just as uh, as, as, as difficult to deal with as false negatives. But I think for, for, for many, of the many of the techniques we've been talking about, particularly those um, uh, derived from normally sterile sites, uh, the degree of confidence that you can have in the results now is extremely high. And uh, I have one last question uh, that is addressed to you by the president of the Global Sepsis Alliance, Professor Reinhardt. So he's asking, what do you think is the best way to move forward to refine the currently proposed new sepsis definitions? <laughs> um, well, that's, that's rather a large, a large question from Professor Reinhardt. Um, I, I, think, I think that, that um, uh, as, I, as I indicated, um, uh, my concern is that the approach that we are taking at the moment is, is a, uh, if you like, a, a lumping approach rather than a splitting approach. In other words, um, that the, um, the way in which we think about it or we are invited to think about it is to identify uh, sepsis as a single um, a unifying and holistic uh, concept and diagnosis uh, for which a simple, uh, a single di a simple definition exists. Uh, and I'm increasingly uh, um, uh, persuaded that that's going to become a redundant concept uh, in not many years' time. Uh, as, we, as we move to more specific diagnostic uh, approaches uh, and we develop our approach to personalized uh, uh, medicine, um, I think sepsis is a, is a useful notion. We all know what, we, what it means as clinicians. Um, but when it comes to developing clinical trials and new therapeutic interventions, I think actually we will move away uh, from uh, using a single, a single definition which will try and describe all this complex group of patients uh, because actually I'm not sure that it will be particularly helpful. So I do really thank you very much. And I would like to welcome the next speaker, uh, who is Professor Steve Opel from Brown University. 
and uh, he has to <clears throat> address the question why antibiotic stewardship is a key. I want to repeat uh, that uh, questions uh, will come at the end of the presentation of Professor Opel, and I would like to uh, ask him to stay uh, close to the time frame of uh, 12 to, 4 to 15 minutes for his presentation. Hello, uh, Professor Opel. Hello, how are you? Very well. Okay, let's begin. I'm going to talk about antibiotic stewardship and uh, the um, essential nature of it as we move forward into the uh, antimicrobial uh, era in which we live. I think we would agree that we were all born into the antibiotic era, and uh, this could be argued to be one of the greatest accomplishments of the 20th century to uh, develop and deploy antibiotics. And we now use a lot of antibiotics. And uh, some, this is some recent data about global antibiotic uh, use and sales. And because they work and they're cheap and readily available, we use a lot of antibiotics. And in fact, it is estimated that uh, annually the average human being uh, uh, consumes about eight uh, daily defined doses of antibiotics uh, um, each year, which is a lot of antibiotics. And we particularly use antibiotics in critical care medicine and in the uh, ICU. And in the, the EPIC-2 study done a few years ago uh, by uh, Jean-Louis Vincent, uh, where a snapshot of ICUs around the globe was, was taken uh, on a specific day uh, on May 8, 2000. Seven of the 14,000 patients who were occupying ICU beds on that day, 71% were receiving antibiotics, which is a pretty incredible number. So antibiotics are used a lot, and we use them a lot in the ICU. And, of course, we do so for uh, some obvious reasons, one of which is uh, septic shock, which is uh, a common um, reason for entry into the intensive care unit, we know that early intervention with the appropriate antibiotic is a life-saving um, process, and so we use antibiotics a lot. We, they're typically empiric, and they're typically broad-spectrum because we're often not sure what the pathogen is. Now, technology may allow us in the near future to change that, as Dr. Cohen was mentioning, but at the present time, we're stuck giving empiric antibiotics when we see patients presenting with septic shock. Uh, we also uh, use a lot of antibiotics in our patients after they survive the initial onslaught of uh, septic shock and remain in the ICU for any period of time. And we're becoming increasingly familiar with a syndrome which is now called PICS, uh, persistent inflammation, immunosuppression, and catabolism state, that we see many of our patients who are long-term stay patients in the ICU after they recover from their initial septic shock, only to develop second and sometimes uh, tertiary uh, and multiple other infections and, and get treated with uh, antibiotics uh, uh, even after their initial septic process has uh, resolved. And, of course, we now find ourselves awash in antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and I don't want to relate this to this audience. We know the problems. We've got uh, carbapenemases. We've got broad-spectrum 
the lactamases, quinolone resistance, now uh, colistin resistance, and we occasionally now run into pathogens which are resistant to basically all standard antimicrobial agents, which is a very sobering and, and difficult situation. And we need to do something about it. And as Dr. Cohen also mentioned, this has now become um, a political issue where uh, there's enough citizens of the world dying of multidrug-resistant infections that there's a tension now at the level of the WHO and the, and the UN to deal with this problem. And uh, as was uh, mentioned, um, the statistics are in the U.S. It's estimated about 23,000 citizens uh, and 25,000 uh, Europeans uh, die annually from multidrug-resistant pathogens. And uh, many people now are, are appropriately concerned about this. And one of the standard recommendations is using antibiotic stewardship as a way of stemming the tide for antibiotic resistance. And the, the question, of course, is, uh, will this actually work? So just a, a comment about stewardship. So what is the definition of stewardship? Uh, it's the careful and responsible management of something of great value that has been entrusted to your care. And I think it's clear that antibiotics uh, fit that category very well of something of great value that uh, we have as clinicians the capability of treating these uh, with due respect and uh, using them wisely. And to, to not follow that uh, logic seems uh, self-defeating and, and the wrong way to go. So I just wanted to mention just briefly what the topic means and why it's important in treating sepsis and how are we going to save antibiotics for future generations. So we actually know what to do. We know that we should use antibiotics only when they're needed. They should, we should use as narrow spectrum an agent as possible, and we should stop them when they're no longer working. So it's not a mystery to us what, what to do, but getting people to do those things is the real challenge. So uh, there's a couple things that's, that's quite helpful, one of which is uh, technology. There's now some technology that really helps us, so rapid um, uh, molecular diagnostics are coming um, very quickly, and they're already available to, in some situations. So we use Gene Expert at our own place and find this to be an extremely valuable for specific uh, situations. Additionally, the electronic medical record, however painful it is as clinicians to sit in front of a computer and put all this information in about our patients, uh, it's actually providing us with some useful tools to uh, help with antibiotic uh, stewardship. So this figure shows um, gene expert for if you see a gram-positive cocci in a blood culture bottle and you then uh, uh, run a gene expert, it'll tell you whether it's Staph aureus, uh, coagulase-native Staphylococci, and whether it's vancomycin, or excuse me, whether it's methicillin-sensitive or methicillin-resistant. And you can you can use it information right away uh, because of the technology, and that is going to help us out a great deal. It already is helping us out. Um, so what we now do in the, in the U.S. now, it's a mandate for the uh, centers from Medicaid and Medicare uh, services that institutions have an antibiotic stewardship program, and we have one like most other places, and uh, in our hospital, a large hospital, 700-bed 
level one trauma hospital. Um, uh, we get uh, the daily output of antibiotic use for each patient and can uh, sit in front of the computer and determine whether the pathogen and the susceptibility patterns match. And then we give feedback to the clinical services uh, with either text alerts or chart notes or phone calls or formal comp- uh, consultation if, if needed. And this is some of our results. So this is uh, the the services here are run by Chet Kuna, who's done a very good job with this. And basically, we give advice on whether you can switch from IV to oral and whether you should be stopping your antibiotics at this point or whether we can uh, decrease the giving combination therapies and so on and so forth. And, you know, we give these suggestions to the clinicians and about 84 to 85% of the time they pay attention to us. Sometimes there's a reason they, they feel otherwise, and that's, that's fine. But at least we're giving them some, some feedback and some hopefully useful information that can help with antibiotic stewardship. Now, an important question is, um, I think we all agree that antibiotic stewardship is basically a moral imperative, and we as clinicians should salvage antibiotics and use them wisely. But how do we measure success? How do we know whether our program is having the expected uh, impact? So is it the total antibiotic use or rates of C. difficile in the hospital or whether we're reducing multidrug-resistant pathogen rate um, or better outcomes. I mean, these are not clear how you actually measure this in your own institution. I can just tell you uh, we've had a very robust system that's been in, 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 face, in place since 2014, and as you can see in this figure, if you can see the figure, is that we really haven't had a, much of an impact on total antibiotic use. Now, of course, the patient mix changes, susceptibilities change, and so on, so it's not real obvious actually uh, how to demonstrate this uh, actually works. I think this is going to be an interesting challenge for us to show whether we're, our intervention, however logical, is actually having its, its intended uh, outcome. Now, let me just finish by saying that it's uh, worth considering that at least two-thirds of all antimicrobials used worldwide are not used for medical purposes. They're used for agricultural uses in intensive uh, agriculture. And, of course, the concern is, will the uh, benefits of antibiotic stewardship in the ICU be uh, negated by having farmers abuse antibiotics um, and uh, making it more difficult for us uh, in treating human infections? And I think this is really an issue. And so antibiotic usage in the environment, as I mentioned, is a major problem. Most of the antibiotics actually go for this type of use. And it's not clear how we can affect this by working in our ICUs and trying to do a good job with antibiotics. And it's clear that we are uh, can set the example for antibiotic stewardship, but we're only part of the problem, and preserving antibiotics for future generations will actually require global action, not just with uh, medicine, but also with agribusiness. So with that, I'll stop, and thanks for your attention. Well, I do thank you very much for this uh, very nice presentation, and uh, uh, we have several questions coming from uh, uh, the attendants. So, the first question, which is actually one of the, it was 
given very early during your presentation, and it is how do you approach the issue of doctors having their favorite antibiotics and the fact that they always keep on prescribing no matter what stewardship means. Right. So th this requires a, a little uh, uh, political um, uh, and diplomatic uh, uh, approach to antibiotic prescribing because basically uh, we're viewed as antibiotic police and the doctors have had the opportunity to write whatever order they wanted to and now someone's telling them, well, maybe you shouldn't do that. And so that they don't like it, and that's that's a problem. So what we what we've done is, I think, and I would encourage you to do this: is you go to each, you have a have a meeting with each specialty, and talk to them about antibiotics and use their guidelines, their own guidelines. So if you're talking to orthopedic surgeons, get the orthopedic surgery antibiotic guidelines, and then talk to them about it, and the, and and then we all agree that this is the correct thing to do, and then when they get a phone call three months later when they're using a broad-spectrum antibiotic when they could use ampicillin, they should use ampicillin. And so uh, it does require a certain level of diplomacy uh, to do this uh, correctly and not to get into fights with people over uh, their favorite antibiotic. So, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an issue and one I think you have to start uh, at uh, the, the beginning of your program to uh, engage with the clinicians, the end users, and make sure that they understand we're, we're trying to help them. And it's also a, a mandate that we're supposed to do this and that we should work together on trying to solve the problems. Uh, a, a second question is, do you believe that the use of biomarkers can improve antibiotic stewardship? This is sure. actually I mean, a concept that is mainly developed in Europe, but you're coming from the States, and my understanding is that now this concept uh, is coming to the States. So what's your position in everyday practice on this? Yeah, I, I think that uh, biomarkers, inflammatory markers, speci you know, specific pathogen markers, toxin markers, these are, are very, very helpful and are coming into standard clinical use and is going to be a big help to us. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in biomarkers, and I think it will help with antibiotic stewardship. And uh, a difficult question to answer from the political point of view, how can we apply antibiotic restriction in private hospitals in developing countries? Yeah, a major issue. And uh, there are a lot of other, I mean, there's a lot of uh, subtitles to this. There are economic issues, there are reimbursement, and there's a lot of other issues to, to deal with. And, and I, I personally think it's going to have to be done at the ground level. You have to, def you have to find a person or persons at each institution who are willing to take on this challenge and do it for the, uh, the good of uh, the hospital as well as the good of society. And uh, they have to be convinced that uh, this is something that's important uh, to all of us. And so uh, I, I don't think you can mandate on a top-down approach how to solve the problems at each institution. I think it has to be a bottoms-up approach where you get interested individuals at each place willing to take on this challenge and then uh, work with their own clinicians with their local problems. 
it's not easy. Well, thank you really very much for your contribution, your exciting presentation. Uh, due to the lack of time, we have to uh, go on uh, to the next speaker, and I would like to welcome the chairman of the Center for Sepsis Control and Care from Vienna University Hospital, Professor Michael Bauer. Uh, he will uh, give us his feedback on the novel approaches to pathogen detection. Professor Bauer. Thank you, Vangelis, uh, for the kind introduction, and I guess I can step in uh, right here after Stephen, um, and uh, we are just following up, and uh, as we would all probably agree, infection medicine has witnessed dramatic improvements regarding the outcome over the past century, um, as shown here exemplarily for meningitis, and so far the development of novel antibiotics kept pace with the resistance problem. Um, and so why should we really bother to develop novel approaches to pathogen uh, detection? And uh, I guess in the light um, of any sepsis de definition, here is the current definition uh, from earlier this year, um, it's obvious that um, as we define sepsis as a complex of uh, life-threatening organ dysfunction that is triggered uh, by uh, dysregulated response of the host to this infection, we need to get and we need to treat uh, um, the type of infection as specific as possible um, because in particular now the advent of the post-antibiotic era is truly approaching. And um, in order to really treat an infection appropriately with antibiotics, there have to be several points that need to be fulfilled in order to be uh, successful with any antibiotic treatment, and that is that the disease process um, is indeed induced by microorganisms that can be treated by, by antibiotics, and this is not trivial, as uh, I will going to discuss very soon. And on the other hand side, the microbes have to be sensitive to antibiotic treatment. So this is in the light of multi-resistance, uh, perhaps the most important issue. And we should also have several other aspects fulfilled, such as sufficient concentration and also immune competent hosts. So uh, when you go to the intensive care unit, uh, you obviously uh, are confronted with a lot of patients that are not necessarily, um, that it's not necessarily clear that the host response is really triggered by infection. As you see here on the left-hand side, this woman with the colon uh, perforation is looking very similar with the systemic inflammation, the generalized edema formation like the patient with trauma uh, and uh, infiltrates on the chest X-ray on the right-hand side, and it's by no means clear uh, that in this case this uh, systemic inflammatory response is really triggered by a pathogen. And um, if we go even um, into large clinical trials that uh, have well-documented um, uh, microbiology results, you can see here that calculated antibiotics um, are not frequently, are not uh, really appropriate to treat uh, the underlying 
rate of infection. And as these studies are uh, several years old, uh, we really have to admit that this problem is going to increase over time and we tackle it currently just by ever broader and more uh, antibiotics. And this is not going to solve our problem, but rather aggravate the problem um, from a society point of view over the next couple of years. And as Steve already pointed out, mortality depends on antibiotic prescription. If we do not initiate appropriate therapy, we might confront roughly a doubled uh, mortality compared to appropriate treatment. And the only currently available approach to this um, phenomenon is indeed to use broader spectrum uh, antibiotics such as carbapenems or even carbapenems alongside with uh, vancomycin and other so-called reserve antibiotics. And this is essentially going back uh, 100 years ago when Paul Ehrlich introduced the concept of hitting the pathogens hard and early. So it's intuitively uh, seemingly right to do so, but uh, if you go into more uh, contemporary uh, studies, such as this one here uh, from Virginia by um, Granich, um, um, uh, you can see here what they did was a pseudo-experimental uh, design. They looked in the before and um, after uh, design to cohorts of patients over one year each period and looked whether um, calculated um, uh, antibiotics would improve outcome. And this is the subgroup of the most sick of all patients where you would not postpone antibiotics. And so the ones with septic shock and the low mean arterial pressure and in the period where they um, had uh, the calculated early antibiotics and this was very broad, they even had uh, increased mortality rate compared to the period of time where they postponed um, the initiation of antibiotics until they had more evidence to tackle the pathogen in a more specific uh, way. Now, um, how can we achieve early identified and uh, we are all aware that the blood culture is considered as the gold standard to identify pathogens in sepsis. It obviously has to be viewed in the context of other uh, microbiological research, but nevertheless, blood culture has a very dominant role here, and it's by itself, it's highly sensitive. It can detect three to five pathogens in a 10-milliliter sample, but it will only identify metabolic active bacteria, which might be a problem when calculated antibiotics are already started. And it's also not particularly successful with fastidious and difficult to culture bacteria or like uh, fungi. And the time requirements really are the real problem as we discuss uh, right now how we can improve uh, treatment of these patients. And um, overall, the detection rate in the range of 15% in all patients with presenting with severe sepsis is also a major concern. Now, what are 
uh, alternatives that we could rely on, and uh, this is shown here. Um, uh, as you can see, we can um, really uh, get a reasonable uh, information, which is the gram stain on perhaps 24 hours or 16 to 24 hours after initiation of the blood culture, but uh, with respect to molecular diagnostics, and I have exemplarily pointed out here the PCR, uh, we could get down this time to get the information on the pathogen, perhaps a very limited information on resistance patterns with PCR within six to nine hours. So we could really improve patient care here with culture-independent molecular testing. And this is taken from a um, meta-analysis that we performed um, a couple of years ago, um, looking at the comparative performance of PCR as compared to blood culture. And as you can see here on the left-hand side, um, there is uh, typically some increase in the share of positive results here in the meta-analysis from uh, 20 to perhaps 26 or 27 percent, and you can correctly predict approximately 80 percent of all blood culture results by the PCR. So in 80 percent of positive blood culture, you will detect uh, by PCR the pathogen uh, substantially earlier, and um, um, you will also find more pos positive uh, pathogens. On the other hand side, you will miss some pathogens that will show up uh, later on in the blood culture. Now, is this PCR result uh, meaningful? And uh, we have analyzed this um, with respect to, um, for instance, association with markers of disease severity, as shown here for procalcitonin, and C-reactive protein. This is um, analysis uh, from Frank Plos from uh, our group. And as you can see here, that uh, either blood culture positive uh, positivity or PCR positivity in particular, joint positive results are associated with these biomarkers that would support that these um, results are real. And uh, what also came out in this uh, study that we did under real-world conditions. This was done. Um, we sent off a PCR tube with every blood culture we would take for several hundred uh, patients here. And you can see here that the median time to a result was uh, substantially shortened here from uh, the range of uh, 65 hours to 23 hours uh, with the PCR. So very significant uh, reduction in the time to resize even in real-life conditions. And the problem really is the limited use of PCR to get information regarding uh, resistance of the detected pathogens. And you can see here that uh, this might be overcome by several modern techniques, such as uh, next-generation sequencing um, or mass spectrometry um, or uh, also phenotypic characterization that would subject uh, cultured uh, 
bacteria, for instance, in a microfluidically supported system and look whether they respond uh, biochemically to the presence of <coughs> antibiotics. And I would only like to tackle here in more detail uh, mass spectrometry. This is the so-called uh, Iridica system, uh, which is fairly um, well tested so far already. What you would do is you would um, prepare nucleic acids and amplify them by a protrange PCR and then subject it to mass spectrometry and would get a very um, rapid information regarding the pathogen um, based on a, a huge database. And you can do that for approximately 1,000 pathogens. And you could theoretically also use the system to uh, get information um, regarding persistence because it's uh, a resolution with respect to mass that is very similar to what you can achieve with next generation sequencing. So uh, to make a long story short, I guess we will see in the next future tests that will allow us to really get early on information regarding uh, pathogens uh, in a way that we can really get more cautious with respect to post-spectrum antibiotics, in particular in the context of antibiotic stewardship programs, as has been already pointed out uh, by Stephen Opart. So to sum this up, uh, what I would like to propose is that you can obtain more positive results. These molecular tests will yield more positive results. They have clearly a shorter time to result, and theoretically, right now, there is no system that is really uh, tested regarding its clinical utility, but theoretically they can also provide information regarding resistance, in particular in the light of multi-resistance. And uh, I guess this is obvious from what I've said so far, they warrant prospective testing regarding clinical utility, and these studies are currently underway, and I would like to finish with Roger Bone, who pointed out that we should spend more time to achieve an accurate diagnosis and less time for searching a magic bullet. Thank you for your interest, and I'm ready to take questions. Well, thank you really very much for your uh, contribution, and uh, I would uh, like uh, to invite uh, the next uh, speaker, uh, he's Oliver Kurzai from Jena. He's heading the group Septomics, uh, and uh, we welcome his uh, presentation on novel approaches to diagnose fungal sepsis. Yeah, dear colleagues and uh, dear participants of this first World Sepsis Congress, it's really a huge pleasure for me to introduce some of um, our concepts and, and ideas on the current approach to diagnose fungal sepsis and fungal invasive infection in, in the context of this really outstanding meeting. So fungal infections and fungal sepsis uh, in particular are often viewed as rare and, and perhaps even exotic by uh, medical practitioners uh, within the uh, entire spectrum of sepsis cases worldwide. Now certainly if you accept that sepsis in itself is still an under-recognized problem, this definitely also holds true for um, invasive fungal infections. However, fungal infections are less rare than, than you might think. And uh, if you look at these pictures here, I, saw, uh, I brought some exemplary images of major invasive uh, fungal infections. 
Here you can see a skin lesion um, as you might encounter it in invasive cryptococcosis, which is fungal infection mainly affecting HIV-positive patients in, in high-prevalence settings like sub-Saharan Africa. You can see invasive candida infection um, presenting here with lesions in the liver or in the spleen. Invasive aspergillosis, which is a hallmark uh, pulmonary infection in many immunocompromised um, patient cohorts. And finally, uh, a classical mucoralis infection, uh, infections that result in devastating local tissue destruction and also poor outcome in these patients. Now, if you look at the uh, estimated yearly case numbers for these uh, infections, many of you will probably be surprised about the global impact that these pathogens um, actually cause. And this global impact is even increased if you look at the outcome of these infections because these and many other fungal infections actually are associated with a really high attributable mortality and dramatic consequences for, for the patients. Now, many of these fungal infections, invasive fungal infections, do occur in uh, classical high-risk uh, collectives, like patients undergoing solid, solid organ transplantation or uh, allogeneic stem cell transplantations. However, there is a number of recent publications that have shown that new risk coll collectives are actually emerging, and among those we find, for example, patients in intensive care due to uh, more and more invasive uh, options on the intensive care unit, we also see fungal infections in uh, this setting. Now, as an example, I want to briefly mention one study that uh, looked at autopsies from ICU patients and uh, identified pathologies that were overlooked during patient care. And interesting. And perhaps unexpectedly for, for many of us, and uh, probably also including myself, um, this study came up with invasive aspergillosis being one of the most common missed diagnoses in the intensive care unit setting. There is another important study in ICU patients, the so-called EPIC-2 point prevalence analysis, that also underlines the importance of fungal infections in ICU. Again, in this study, there was a relatively high prevalence of uh, fungal infections, 7 in 1,000 patients, and uh, a dramatically increased um, mortality compared to bacterial bloodstream infections. And there is um, a comment which was accompanying this publication by Alberto Corona, where he states that, um, that candida species are now really responsible for 5 to 10% of bloodstream infections. And again, he mentions uh, the high um, associated attributable mortality of these infections. Now, due to this uh, importance of candida infections, I want to focus on candida uh, invasive infection, bloodstream infection for uh, the rest of the talk because this is the major infection uh, that we think about uh, in the sepsis setting. And candida bloodstream infection usually results from colonization. And this is either colonization of the gastrointestinal tract, and most of you will know that candida is a, a common colonizer of the gastrointestinal tract occurring in more than 50% of healthy adults, or it will occur from colonization of plastic, especially catheters or other plastic materials, and, and uh, candida, especially candida albicans, is a, is a perfect biofilm former, and this can be a source for distribution of this pathogen. Now, for the first route of infection, uh, dissemination from the gastrointestinal tract, we usually require disturbance of the epithelial barrier function plus 
some degree of immunosuppression, mainly the cellular immune system. And then uh, we can, can get disseminated candidiasis, and candida disseminates usually in the bloodstream and can then um, lead to different pathologies, among them candida sepsis. However, candida is not only a primary cause of bloodstream infection and sepsis, these infections can also occur as a secondary infection in the context of, um, for example, bacterial sepsis. So bacterial sepsis may well induce immune paralysis and also, of course, barrier disturbance in the gut, and this can then um, uh, put the patients at risk for secondary bloodstream infection due to candida. And there is a nice study from China by In fact, candida bloodstream infection rarely results in classical sepsis and classical sepsis symptoms, and only in up to 25% of candidemic patients these uh, classical sepsis, sepsis symptoms were noted in several studies. However, if this occurs, and especially in the, in the case of septic shock due to uh, candida infection, um, the outcome is really dramatic, and it has been stated that candida septic shock is, in fact, a near-fatal condition. Now, how can we diagnose invasive candida infection? The, the most important materials that are used for this purpose are given on, on the slide here, and clearly blood and uh, serum are the most common samples uh, that are used for diagnosis. The slide also shows the, um, um, the microbiological methods that can be employed. And these include conventional methods like culture, including, of course, conventional blood culture, as well as microscopy, especially from uh, materials like discharge and pus or tissue biopsies, but also serological tests and molecular biology. And I, I now, for a minute, want to focus on the latter two, and this is mainly for two reasons. One reason is that we have seen a clear and significant development for these tests in the last 10 years, so clearly there is advancement in our diagnostic opportunities. And second, um, these two methods, especially these two methods, can provide rapid test results to the clinician. And this is, of course, a prerequisite to really um, achieve the possibility to, to, uh, to induce targeted therapy based on diagnostic tests. Now, if you look at the um, serological tests, there are two major uh, tests that are quite different. On the one hand, there is the uh, test for beta-D glucan which is a common cell wall component, actually not only present in candida species, but in, in, um, in many fungal species in general. And this uh, cell wall carbohydrate is detected by a so-called modified limulus amoebocyte assay. This is a test system which makes use of a coagulation cascade uh, in the horseshoe crab, which is actually triggered by beta-glucan and thus highly sensitive. And on the other hand, we have what is commonly known as candida serology, and this is mainly a, a combination of tests for mannan antigen, it's an alpha-1,5 monocyte in the cell wall of candida, and antibody detection, detection of antibodies targeting this carbohydrate structure. Now, in this graph here, you can see that the beta-1,3-D glucan test is by no way specific for candida. In fact, it will become positive for many fungal infections. There are also conditions uh, that are not related to fungal infection which um, may cause a positive BR13D glucan test. In the contrary, candida serology testing is rather specific for candida and unlikely to, to get positive for other fungal infections. 
but there are many studies out there evaluating these tests in, in different conditions, different patient cohorts, and this is especially true for the beta glucan test, which has been analyzed in large patient cohorts, and uh, there are also uh, even meta-analysis available. However, in the end, uh, and I think this is, this is a very important aspect, the performance of these tests will depend on your local situation. Which patients do you test? This is a very important question. What is the expected prevalence of candida infection at your site, in your ward, in your hospital? Uh, and clearly, these tests can perform very differently depending on these parameters. So therefore, I decided to not um, actually show all the meta-analysis, but um, restrict myself to one study which was performed in a single center in a university hospital setting in Germany. And this study actually nicely compares these uh, different tests. And if you look here at the outcomes for sensitivity and specificity, you see that the beta glucan test has a reasonable sensitivity and specificity, but both parameters are certainly far from being perfect. And for the man and antigen and antibody test, the conclusion clearly would be that neither of these tests is on itself by itself enough for diagnostic and testing. Uh, so, uh, and this is actually something which is found in many different studies, and uh, is therefore clearly this study and other studies res uh, result in the uh, um, conclusion that the Mannon test should only be used in combination. But even in combination, and this is also true for the beta-D-glucan test, the positive predictive value is not really good. And this is another conclusion from this and other studies, suggesting that we should actually use these tests tests based on their reasonable negative predictive value. So especially in a low prevalence setting, uh, the, using the negative predictive value of these tests seems much more reasonable than to use single positive test results for identification of patients uh, with uh, invasive fungal infection because this is inherently unreliable. Now this is serology. Can we, can we further improve this using uh, molecular tools? And um, there are basically two approaches to molecular um, detection of candida bloodstream infections. One uses in-house protocols, and there is a bunch of in-house protocols published and developed uh, that are highly different using different P uh, DNA extraction protocols, different uh, target uh, genes. Um, but there is a nice uh, meta-analysis mentioned here which shows that if you have a reasonably sensitive protocol and this basically means a detection limit of below 10 colony-forming units per milliliter of blood, you get good results, good uh, sensitivity and specificity. However, clearly the lack of a standardized protocol is, is a major drawback in this, and this also again means that the usefulness of a PCR protocol, an in-house PCR protocol, has to be evaluated uh, in the local setting with the specific test that can be applied. On the other hand, we have Candida, and also, by the way, Aspergillus, included in, so in commercial tests, especially uh, sepsis panels. Uh, examples for this are sepsi tests or septifast, and there are others out. And um, uh, if you look at the results for evaluation of these test systems, uh, Candida and also Aspergillus are frequently among those species that are detected in the molecular assay, but not in accompanying classical blood cultures, again suggesting that molecular tools can really aid in the diagnosis of invasive fungal infections. So at this stage, let me summarize what I've said so far. Clearly, invasive fungal infections are 
a neglected subgroup of systemic infections, and it's mainly the diagnostic tools that need to be improved. I've shown you that serological tests can be used, especially in high-incidence populations, and we should use them mainly due to their reliable negative predictive value. The PCR protocols, as I said on the last slide, can help to identify patients with invasive fungal infection uh, or at risk for invasive fungal infection, but the clinical benefit actually remains to be determined and there is no single study out uh, really showing a clear clinical benefit of PCR protocols. So again, this will be a situation depending, uh, a decision depending on your local situation. Now, on the last two slides, let me, um, let me put a look further into the future. The first test that, um, that I want to mention is actually not that far in the future because there is already an evaluation study out and published uh, actually last year in clinical infectious diseases. The so-called T2 DX system uh, diagnoses cannula bloodstream infection based on the capture of the pathogen with uh, super paramagnetic beads. So this is not a DNA-based or PCR-based study. It actually has a really good limit of detection uh, below 5 CFU per milliliter, so clearly in the range of what we would expect from a, a molecular test. But it's also able to easily identify co-infection. And in fact, there was an evaluation study both with uh, spiked samples and within a prospective study, and you can see the results down here. And in the range of reasonable um, disease prevalence, let's say 5%, 10%, the performance of this test system was really good. So we get a good positive predictive value and uh, an excellent negative predictive value, and clearly this is a very promising result. There were some drawbacks, and this has to be sorted out in further studies. For example, many indeterminate results in the study, but clearly this is a new and highly promising approach to diagnosis of invasive fungal infection. And in the end, um, I want to uh, look further into the future and, uh, and, and state that hopefully at some stage we will be able to combine a lot of different test systems that go far beyond the tests that I've uh, introduced so far. And I show uh, an image here taken from a publication by Smik and Satar um, where you can see that we may in the future be able to integrate genomic data, transcriptomic data, proteomic data to really get an individual uh, pattern for a patient. So this means we analyze predisposing genetic factors characteristic immune response patterns, metabolic signatures, and so on. And then we will really get a complete view of the patient and uh, his or her risk for invasive fungal infection. However, clearly this is far in the future, far from being applied in the clinics, but I think this is highly promising and research will definitely be pursued in the next years. So with this, I, I would like to close my remarks. So thanks to uh, Konrad and Simon again for, for the invitation. Thanks to everyone in the audience for listening. And uh, let's, uh, let's make all efforts to further improve the situation of all the patients that suffer from sepsis and systemic infections worldwide. Thank you very much. I do thank you for your presentation. For technical reasons, we will not uh, jump into any discussion and Q&As for this presentation. So allow me to introduce the, the last uh, speaker coming from the University of Milano. Uh, this is Pietro Caironi, and he will give his view on novel biomarkers. Thank you very much, Evangelos. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good evening to everybody. And I will change a little bit perspective of uh, the discussion. And uh, so I will talk about tonight of novel biomarkers. 
I think that every time we start to talk about novel biomarkers, it's important to have in mind what we have already known about this topic. And starting from the late 70s, the number of studies concluded and published on this topic uh, strikingly increased, ending up to more than 600 uh, studies in the last year. Now, all of us, I think, would aim to find a specific and single biomarker for sepsis, uh, such as troponin in myocardial infarction or natriuretic peptide in acute heart failure. But the problem is that we still are looking for it, and we are still striving to find the holy grail of biomarkers in sepsis. And uh, every time we approach uh, a novel candidate, I think it's important to have in mind which may be the general principle defining a correct approach to a novel candidate for circulating biomarkers. So first of all, a novel biomarker should be based upon an accurate and repeated measurements available first of all at the bedside and secondly at a reasonable cost. And a biomarker must provide information which are not already available from the clinical setting. And of course, the knowledge of the level of the novel biomarker should aid in medical decision making. And uh, on the other hand, when we think to implement a novel biomarker in clinical settings, we need to have in our hands solid data based upon representative patients with a reasonable sample size. And unfortunately, not all, not all the novel biomarkers, actually very few of them, have all these characteristics. But before going through a few examples of novel biomarkers, I would like to highlight two further premises. The first one is uh, regarding the possible goals of uh, research on novel biomarkers. In the, last, in the first decade, uh, research on biomarkers has been focused more on the diagnosis of sepsis or more accurately on the presence of the infection, and secondly, on the prognosis in terms of severity uh, stratification. But at the same time, it has been focused um, uh, a lot on pathophysiology with the, in the attempt also to find a specific molecule for a specific therapy, and as well as for the monitoring of the response to a specific treatment applied. But I think that in the recent uh, years, research on biomarkers has been changed a little bit focus and has been focused more on the early identification of specific organ failures, as well as, and I think this approach is crucial, uh, as for the characterization of specific phenotype of septic patients, which may have a different response to the same treatment applied. But as a second premise, we need to put this framework uh, into the, a more general context because we know that uh, viability starts from genes. As we have already heard in the previous talks, uh, biomarker, a biomarker is a molecule which is derived from genes and uh, uh, viability starts from genes. And going through transcriptomics, we may end up to have different phenotypes and different levels of expression of different biomarkers. And several investigators in the last few years have decided to uh, go into another direction uh, in the attempt, first of all, to put together different biomarkers in what we may define as a multi-biomarker approach. And as a second approach, uh, 
they tested it, as we will see, uh, simultaneously different biomarkers in order to be more effective to pick up a specific and a good candidate for future development. Now, before going into the examples uh, for um, those of you are, who are involved in research on biomarkers, please accept my apologies because, of course, I had the table task of uh, talking about novel biomarkers in about eight to ten minutes. So if your biomarker is, will not be mentioned, it's not because it's not important, but because these examples uh, are just uh, got just my attention in the last few years. So the first example I will show you is secretoneurine, for which we have data in terms of prognosis, in terms of pathophysiology, and potentially also for an early identification of a specific organ failure, which is actually heart failure. Secretoneurine is a protein which is included in the chromogranin secretoganin protein family. And uh, we had last year uh, clinical data uh, showing that uh, this biomarker is increased as associated with the presence of acute heart failure, and uh, its level is associated with an increased risk of death. And in vitro data uh, showed that this circulating biomarker may be internalized in, into cardiomyocytes and may be involved in calcium handling. So starting from this hypothesis, two groups of investigators from the fin sepsis and finale study groups decided to evaluate this biomarker in two different cohorts of patients, cohort one including patients with sepsis and cohort two including just patients with infection and acute respiratory failure. And uh, uh, these investigators very nicely showed that early levels of secretoneurine were associated with an increased risk of death of hospital mortality in both cohorts, suggesting therefore that this biomarker may be a good candidate for prognostication and potentially also for the detection of a specific organ failure, which may be sepsis-related myocardial depression. The second biomarker I will talk about is PCSK9, for which we have strong data in terms of pathophysiology of sepsis with a potential also for a targeted therapy, and possibly we will have also some data in terms of prognosis. Uh, starting from different studies from the cardiovascular world, we know that PCSK9, which is a small complex of two different proteins, is involved in clearance of lipoproteins. And since we know that LPS is a lipoprotein, these investigators hypothesized that PCSK9 may be also involved in LPS clearance. And very nicely, in an in vitro uh, study, they showed that an increased level of PCSK9 was associated with a reduction, a blunting of uh, LPS clearance. And more importantly, in a cohort of seps or suspected septic patient at the emergency department, they showed that increased level of PCSK9 were associated with the presence of septic shock and with the subsequent development of respiratory failure as compared to patients without respiratory failure, suggesting therefore that this protein, this biomarker, can be first of all a, an early detector of specific organ failures, but more importantly, maybe also a target of a specific therapy, which I think will be tested in the next few years as an inhibitor of PCSK9. 
The third biomarker I will talk about and I will present to you is pricepsin, which is a small fragment of the soluble CD14. We know that CD14 is a high affinity co-receptor, which is uh, present in two different isoforms, the membrane isoform and the soluble isoform, and is crucial for the detection of LPS and other pathogen-associated molecular partners, patterns in uh, sepsis. And there were also already some data supporting the use of this biomarker in terms of diagnosis of sepsis. And somehow uh, we had also some data, in vitro data, uh, showing that monocytes and macrophages are able to release into the blood circulation pricepsin after phagocytosis. So somehow this biomarker may be also directly related to the intensity of the host response towards an infecting microorganism. With that in mind, we decided to test this biomarker in a large subgroup of uh, our albios uh, population. Uh, the albios trial was originally um, uh, evaluating the efficacy of albumin as compared to crystalloids, and from this large multicenter trial, we created a biobank of about 1,000 patients, and perception was measured at day one, day two, and day seven, uh, with two specific aims. First of all, uh, in order to evaluate the possible prognostic value of perception levels in a large cohort of septic patients, and secondly, in order to test the clinical validity of sequentially monitoring perception during ICU stay. And what I will show you is what I think is uh, the most important result regarding the adequacy of antibiotic therapy in this uh, population. In patients with negative blood culture, perception level were lower uh, as compared to patients with positive blood culture, but more importantly, patients with a positive blood culture and undergoing an appropriate antibiotic therapy showed a decreased level over the first seven days of treatment of perception, while patients with positive blood culture and an inappropriate antibiotic therapy showed an increased level of perception over the first seven days, suggesting therefore that this biomarker may be a good candidate for monitoring the adequacy of the early antibiotic therapy applied early on in the treatment of severe sepsis and septic shock patients. And the last biomarker I will talk about is actually included in the bunch of biomarkers derived from a metabolomic approach, which has the potential to address all the goals of biomarker research with a specific focus on the characterization of specific phenotypes of, deep, of different uh, patients with sepsis. This is a very recent study published a few months ago on critical care medicine uh, in which the investigators included more than 400 patients in which they uh, measured 18, more than 1,800 different metabolites at the same time by mass spectrometry. In this cohort of patients, there were patients with SIRS, patients with, and with patients with sepsis derived from different types of infection, uh, community-acquired pneumonia, inter-abdominal infection, urinary tract infection, and bloodstream infection. And the investigators very nicely showed different, were able to individuate different fingerprints characterizing seps, patients with sepsis derived from different types of infection. And when then uh, they looked at different category 
categories of metabolites such as biogenic amines, glycophospholipids, and sphingolipids. They were able, for instance, to, uh, uh, to observe that patients with community-acquired pneumonia showed an increased expression of biogenic amines and glycophospholipids, while, for instance, patients with sepsis due to another site of infection, bloodstream infection, showed a decreased expression of glycophospholipids and sphingolipids. And with this approach, they were able also to pick up uh, good candidates, uh, different metabolites for each specific infection, such as putrescine, a specific lysophospholipid, and, and another sphingolipid, in order to be able to uh, discriminate the presence of severe sepsis and septic shock as compared to the presence of just sepsis uh, derived from the different type, types of infection. So in conclusion, I think that research on clinical and biological markers should continue, definitely, since the primary aim is definitely worthy. But we need, of course, to keep in mind that sepsis is a syndrome and as such is extremely viable, is extremely heterogeneous. And as a future and as a suggestion for a future successful approach, probably we will need to focus on markers able to detect a specific organ injury, probably by applying a combining approach based upon pathophysiology and biology and towards what is usually called as precision medicine. Thank you very much for your attention. I do thank you, Dr. Caironi, for this uh, fascinating presentation. Uh, extremely helpful and allow me also to thank you uh, on behalf of the co-authors for uh, mentioning uh, this uh, individualized metabolomic approach of our recent publication in Critical Care Medicine. Uh, so, there are some very interesting questions for you, and uh, the first question is coming by the President of the Global Census Alliance, Professor Reinhardt, and is asking, according to your data, do you think that perception is superior to procalcitonin to guide antimicrobial therapy? <laughs> of course, that's an important question, and uh, actually, so far, we have not... Uh, I think that there are not available uh, data yet to answer to this question. We have tested perception in a small subgroup of patients, but uh, that study was performed just in order to evaluate the possible prognostic value of perception. And in that small cohort of patients, 100 patients, uh, perception was superior in terms of prognostication as compared to procalcitonin. So there is, uh, I think, uh, the need to, uh, to perform a study, a comparative study, in order to evaluate if this hypothesis may be true or not. Uh, may I consider that this last comment for the need of the trial can stand as an answer to a question that just arrived. What are your thoughts on procalcitonin as a biomarker? As a biomarker? Of course, I think that uh, procalcitonin is an important biomarker. I'm, and, um, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not convinced uh, as a, in terms of prognostication, but of course, as we have already heard, and also based upon all the data available, procalcitonin is extremely important at least so far for what we know now in terms of uh, evaluating the adequacy of the empiric antibiotic therapy applied and probably in order to reduce the length of antibiotic therapy applied. And uh, actually, I think we need 
biomarkers, uh, as we have heard, in order to apply a good strategy in terms of antibiotics. Uh, so I think the, from this point of view, is a good biomarker. Uh, it's a different story when we think about biomarkers for a specific, for the detection of a specific organ injury or uh, in terms of prognostication, because we have no data uh, supporting procalcitonin from this point of view. Uh, there is one uh, very interesting question, and I understand from the email it's coming from France. Uh, what do you believe about the monitoring of immune cells? Of immune cells? Of course, the, I didn't have the time to, to present also data on immune cells. Actually, um, I think it's a crucial point because, of course, we all know that sepsis derives from the interaction between the immunohost response and the infected microorganisms. So uh, I, I, I strongly believe that this is an important approach and a crucial approach. So far, we don't have um, a lot of technical um, uh, techniques, actually, in order to have a rapid answer at the bedside for the immuno, immuno cells, but uh, I'm really sure that in the next uh, few years we have these te te techniques available, and this will open up a lot of uh, possibilities for, for us. Uh, I would like to, answer, to take advantage of uh, being uh, today uh, a chairperson, and I would like to ask you, uh, the idea of uh, developing the new uh, sepsis tree uh, definitions and also to use QSOFA as uh, an early screening in the triage uh, for a, a patient coming in the emergencies, whether he's indeed under sepsis or a critical condition or not, uh, was to use easily clinical variables that can be used indiscriminately, whether we are in a poor uh, uh, setting or whether we are in a Western country. But let's focus more to the Western countries where most of technology is available. Do you believe that using a benchmarker can indeed improve the sensitivity and the positive predictive value of QSOFA? might be, and, uh, but so far I really think that the diagnosis of sepsis, at least for what we have in our hands, is a clinical diagnosis. Uh, it's so heterogeneous that, of course, we aim to have something like troponin and uh, EKG in order to uh, find out the right diagnosis for infarction, but so far we don't have this information available. But probably and more likely, this is due to the fact that sepsis is not homogeneous as myocardial infarction. So uh, probably yes, in the future, if we will have strong data pointing out towards a specific biomarker, this may will increase the predictive value, the positive predictive value of QSOFA, but at the moment, I think we are still far from there. Uh, there is another question uh, coming from uh, the audience with, pre with precision medicine. Do you think that absorption is the way to go concerning the biomarker technology? Sorry, say, I say it again, there. With precision medicine. Do you think that absorption mm -hmm. is the way, the method, the technique to go on concerning the biomarker technology? Uh, 
I'm sorry of doing something. Yes, instead of, of doing, for instance, this traditional analysis, which is far more rapid. Uh, well, well, in my mind, the, the combination of different biomarkers will definitely help exactly. us in order to 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 find out a specific phenotype. Because I think that the heterogeneity of sepsis is not related to just one single aspect or one single biomarker, but is much more related to a complex picture of present of clinical presentation and biological presentation of that specific patient. So I definitely believe that a combining approach will be more successful in identifying a specific phenotype of patients. Uh, I would like also to uh, address a broader question to the panel. So it's not only for Dr. Khairani, but also for the rest of you who are online. And uh, I would like to know do you believe that uh, using only uh, the traditional molecular techniques for the diagnosis of sepsis is enough? Do you believe that using only biomarkers is enough? Or it turns out that at least for now, uh, emerging of the use of uh, procalcitonin or other biomarkers, other protein molecules, and molecular assays as well, is, should be the gold standard. I would like to uh, uh, know the uh, opinion of Professor Oppel and Professor Bauer on this. Um, hi, Vangelis. This is Michael from Vienna. Um, I guess uh, it's obvious that it's like um, for troponin where you need the ECG along with the troponin that uh, for a syndrome like sepsis you will need the clinical evaluation along with the biomarker. So this is not going to change as I see it for the next uh, couple of years. So it's an integrated um, interpretation and added value of the biomarker over the clinical judgment alone. Uh, Dr. Kairani, what is your uh, opinion on this? Well, uh, as the other speaker said, I think that probably in the next future, and if the technology will help us in doing that, probably the combination of uh, biomarkers which are already applied and genomics, for instance, uh, will, will open up uh, really and will unveil a lot of, first of all, the pathophysiology of sepsis and probably will guide us in specific individualization of targeted therapy and uh, monitoring and therefore outcome of each specific patient. Uh, I also have one question for you. Uh, the great majority of biomarkers, at least uh, according to existing publications, is not only for diagnosis, but also for prognosis. So my question is, at least for the critically ill patient, do, our, uh, uh, do we have uh, reached yet a certain point whether we can use the information of prognostication coming out from a certain biomarker level. Does this really help in uh, clinical practice? <laughs> the, 
that's a very important question because every time we uh, we are testing many different biomarkers in our courts, and every time we have we are we have data on another biomarker. Many times we see an association with prognosis, and every time the question that comes up is, okay, what to do with this data? Uh, in my mind, I think that uh, prognostication information may, may help physicians in order to uh, evaluate the possible application of second-line treatments, for instance, uh, very costly treatments that maybe may not be applied in patients with the, uh, less risk of uh, adverse outcome. And, but at, so far, I think that this is the only way in which we can uh, use uh, at the clinical bedside this type of information. Uh, Professor Bauer? Actually, um, I would uh, also subscribe to this point of view. Um, it's I guess um, we need um, to really have more clinical utility studies in this respect. Um, this is right now more or less crystal gazing until we have better studies really um, to, to um, assess the value of these techniques. Uh, there is uh, a very, it seems, simple question from the audience with an extremely difficult answer. Is there a simple algorithm to follow for diagnosis and management of sepsis? <laughs> Professor Bauer? Actually, this is probably beyond uh, what can be answered uh, right now. Uh, but um, as we already pointed out, I guess... Um, meaningful assessment of the clinical phenotype and clinical judgment along with um, the available biomarkers and molecular diagnostics and conventional, conventional culture-based techniques is really uh, what we need right now and what we have right now. Um, and let's just start from there. Dr. Kairani? Yeah, I agree with what, the, what he said. And uh, I would like just to add, uh, well, probably a couple of, of knowledge we, we are sure of. Of course, we have learned in the past years that the treatment of sepsis should be rapid. This is uh, one of the most important things we need to keep in mind. And the second one is that, of course, we need to, uh, to fight the microorganisms causing the infection. This seems obvious, but many times we, our attention is uh, driven towards the support of organ failures and not towards the treatment of the infecting microorganisms. And of course, the third aspect, uh, we need to provide a good support for the failing organs. But this is, what I said is kind of obvious, but I think it's, it's what we know now. Uh, as, la uh, as a last question, there is a very interesting also point of view, uh, although it's not part of this session, but however, uh, I'm really intrigued by uh, the question that just arrived, uh, where they ask us 
for a short discussion on the use of hemoperfusion as treatment modality to relieve sepsis early. And because, Dr. Caironi, you are coming actually from Italy, where this is one of the first places where this is settled, do you have, <laughs> could, could you give us briefly your experience on this? Yeah, I think that uh, although there are no yet very solid data, well, that, that there was a quite famous uh, publication on, uh, uh, well, at least for uh, if we consider uh, hemoperfusion as uh, the the clearance of LPS, so I'm, I'm referring to polymixin B treatment, and uh, there is of course a, a study. Uh, showing that uh, there is some clinical efficacy on that, and actually we are we are using and in Italy this kind of spread treatment for sepsis, especially from gram negative infection. And uh, and well, my experience is that in some type of patients this is a kind of effective treatment, but is one of the treatment that we need to apply to this type of patient. But of course, in specific categories of, categories of patients, it may work. Dr. Bauer? Uh, actually, um, it's really asking for confirmatory studies, and as far as I know, there is one underway. Um, yep. it, it, right now, it's essentially impossible to answer this question. We have been very um, frequently um, been confronted with very promising uh, studies uh, that didn't stand um, confirmatory trials. So uh, I would be cautious. It's plausible, but this does not yet mean that it's going to be effective. And uh, we have one last question. As always, the uh, president of the Global Sepsis Alliance is uh, challenging the speakers most than anybody else. How important is the differentiation between infectious and sterile inflammation? Uh, actually, this is more or less a philosophical question. I would rephrase it. Um, what we have learned from the interaction of pumps and dumps um, and critical care and pathology <laughs> of organ dysfunction, I would rephrase the, the question. We don't need to discriminate infectious from sterile inflammation, but rather answer the question from a clinical utility point of view, does the patient have benefit from antibiotics or not? And this is not a trivial question because it may even be in the presence of infection that the patient does not necessarily benefit uh, from uh, antibiotics and vice versa. Um, we, to, to, to look into this direction, can we really um, broaden our insight into the pathophysiology in a way that we can identify patients that would benefit from a decrease of the pathogen load and uh, or from uh, a shift in the microbiome in, for instance, sterile infection, what are the consequences for the patient? And in the light of recent molecular biology uh, findings that um, 
Um, there are states of disease tolerance in which pathogens are tolerated without the development of organ dysfunction and in the light of multi-resistance. I guess we have to really think outside of the box um, for these patients in order to solve these burning issues in critical care. Dr. Kairani, do you have anything to add? No, 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 nothing to add. I totally agree with uh, what has been said. So I thank all of you. This concludes a great session. Thank you really very much, and I would like very much to thank the organizers for inviting us in this session. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with the session on Patient Safety and Quality Improvement 3 on the 20th of January. I hope you join us then. Clear, clear.